You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Please uh, take your seat if you have one, and if you don't, sit on the grass. Um, welcome to uh, this evening's event, uh, which uh, has been pulled together with great ease by uh, Delp and OVGA. Uh, it's an event that has two parts, I guess. Uh, one is a very short part, but one is a bit longer. Uh, before I get into either of those parts, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Boon Wurrung. I'd like to pay uh, a respect to, their, to, the, to the owners of the country and uh, for their custodianship of the lands and the waters and for their knowledge and their traditions. We also note that sovereignty has never been ceded. So this evening, there are two parts. One is a very short part, which is to announce that we are opening registrations for a design competition called Future Homes. We're opening it today. Um, and uh, I am lucky enough to be uh, contracted as advisor to this competition. Uh, the competition follows in the heels of other competitions such as the Missing Middle or Density Done Well in uh, Sydney or in Queensland, in New South Wales and Queensland respectively. And uh, as you can imagine, the challenge in the competition is to try and uh, understand how we can approach the question of density in areas where currently there, aren't, there isn't any. We are familiar with, uh, in the recent years, uh, identification of the inner city. We are familiar with, uh, uh, for a long history, the densification of the outer fringes of our city. What seems to be a somewhat almost intractable problem, and yet an inevitable problem we have to come to grips with, is density in the established suburbs in which uh, so much of our, of our citizens live. Um, Melbourne, like other cities across uh, Australia, is experiencing significant population growth, uh, depending on where your projection is to, to uh, 2050, 2056, we're talking eight, nine million people. It's a, it's a massive increase of people. Um, we have uh, lots of economic factors that are driving that and uh, social factors, which are wonderful. Uh, but we are reaching this, this, this position of uh, how do we fit people in? Um, there are lots of reasons why the, uh, the middle suburbs, uh, that which is not the inner city, that which is not the outer suburbs, many reasons why that has, be that has been a really difficult challenge. Um, and we believe, I, I think most of us believe, and in this room, in this, well, you can't really call it a room, this pavilion, which is, by the way, a wonderful pavilion. We should thank Naomi, Naomi Milgram and the Milgram Foundation for this, for this wonderful pavilion, which is cooling, of course, like a, a, an airplane wing would bring the air in and cool us all. Um, but one of the things we all understand is that design has to be a part of this solution. And at the same time, we also know that it is not the only solution. And therefore, we need to find connections between design and other aspects of our, of our lives, which is why today we have a health professional, we have an economics person, we have urban design, we have architects, we have a range of people, because we understand that we can't sit here with five architects and say we've got our magical idea. Maybe 10 or 20 years ago, we could have done that. We could have with great hubris and confidence say we know the answers because we're architects. And now we understand, of course, we need a whole bunch of solutions, a bunch of knowledge banks to try and, to try and work out what to do next. So 
That's the kind of logic, the simple logic, which is that we need to accommodate more people in the city. Uh, we understand that there is a significant challenge at doing so in the established suburbs. And we understand that design is possibly one of the, one of the things that will unlock that. So more specifically, uh, Future Homes is a two-stage open design competition. How many times do you hear that? An open design competition, anonymous, stage one. Not very often these days. Uh, it is driven by design. It is not driven by some notion of your capability and whether you're one of the 10 practices. It is driven by your ideas. So first stage, open and anonymous. Second stage, we will, where we invite, sorry, the first stage is where we invite concept designs. Second stage, we will invite uh, a more detailed uh, uh, schematic design. Um, there is uh, $500,000 worth of prize money and honoraria, so not insignificant um, uh, for those who participate. And at the end of that, um, it's an interesting competition because on one hand, it's not as simple and straightforward as say, here's your contract to go and build that thing over there. Nevertheless, there's definitely, you don't spend $500,000 and not expect to have actual outcomes, outputs. Um, we want to, on the one hand, uh, develop uh, a series of exemplar designs. What that means, we are still working out, but exemplar designs that can be used uh, by the state. We want to uh, possibly look at a demonstration project. And I would say almost the driest, but I think maybe the most important, we want to have an impact on the planning code. We want to have an impact on how apartment designs are, are are taken through the planning process. Because at the moment, there's a massive gap between getting a house through planning and getting an apartment through planning. And we want to fix that part. So there are a number of parts to the, to the outcomes. But for the moment, I want you to jump online and register so that when the competition, when stage one opens in the middle of March, uh, you'll get all the documents and you will all compete most nobly, I'm sure. So that's the first part, which is to announce this competition, which is which is launching today. Sorry? Oh, the, yes, and there is a student competition as well that will be a single stage competition uh, that will come uh, later in a few months' time and is still, still being developed. But yes, there will be a student competition as well. So now uh, on to our second part, which is the longer part, a panel discussion, a series of presentations followed by a, 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 a panel discussion. And I will be inviting questions and answers and they have to be really good ones, otherwise you get in trouble. Um, but we, we do want to have an engaging conversation afterwards. Uh, we have uh, a number of speakers here today. Sadly, one of the speakers we thought might make it here today, Timothy Hill, has been caught, is, is ill and is not able to make it. So we have today uh, uh, Amanda Roberts, who is an urban designer at uh, SJB Urban, has spent her entire career um, understanding the complex uh, matrix of buildings and public spaces, of the tensions that exist often between those two, and how to resolve them in a strategic way. She's worked with both public and private sector in doing so. We have, um, we have uh, Fiona, uh, Dr. Fiona Andrews, who has to leave a little bit early. Um, but uh, she is a senior lecturer at the School of Health and Social Development at Deakin University and a co-leader of HOME, a multidisciplinary research hub that works to inform the delivery of affordable, well-designed, sustainable, and connected housing for all. Uh, we are very, well, we're very happy to have her today because we don't have enough health professionals 
in our industry helping us with our design solutions. We have, sorry, I get my, my papers all confused here. Um, we have Brendan Coates, who is a director of Household, Fi Household Finances Program at the Grattan Institute. Brendan research, Brendan's research focuses on tax reform, economic and budget policy, retirement incomes and superannuation housing, and transport infrastructure in cities. Some of that sounds dry, but um, we, when we're looking at who should, <laughs> when we were looking at who we should have on the panel, as I get older, I realize that if you don't have someone who knows economics uh, in your discussion, especially when you're talking about the city, then you really aren't actually grappling with the serious matters that will make things happen. So we're very happy to have Brandon with us today. Um, Stefan Prius is the Associate of Victorian Government Architect who has a career as both an architect and as an architect engaged in uh, sustainability and understanding uh, how, the, uh, the, uh, the, how our architecture and design needs to adapt to more sustainable ways of doing things. I do sometimes wonder if he you know, knew what he was doing leaving Germany for Australia, where, of course, we are, in some respects, only doing now what they've been doing for a generation. But nevertheless, he has been instrumental in, uh, in uh, a number of um, aspects in relation to sustainability, in relation to neighbors, in relation to uh, how, in a sense, we, we bring together the codification of, of, of delivering buildings with the inspiration and creativity of, of design. And uh, finally, um, I'd like to uh, uh, have a special thanks for Andy Fergus, who stepped in at the last minute from Timothy Hill, um, uh, literally uh, about an hour ago. Um, uh, Andy Fergus is a uh, design critic, commentator, and uh, uh, practitioner. He is an urban designer at City of Melbourne and a co-director of uh, Melbourne Architours. Uh, he is a studio lead at uh, Melbourne City of Design, uh, School of Design, and he engages with the community, government, and design industry and students to advocate for more ethical and high-quality environments. That is our panel for tonight. Please make them very welcome. And in a, I guess in the spirit of starting off with, uh, with, the, with the large, with the macro, with the city, uh, we should start with urban design. So please, would you make uh, Amanda Roberts especially uh, welcome for starting off this evening's conversation. When I was asked to be on the panel um, and told there was only eight minutes, I kind of freaked out because I think we can talk about this for years. So I've got some notes to make sure I don't go over. And out of the 50 different topics that an urban designer can talk about when we're talking about increased density, I've picked three and hoping that the rest of the panel will cover some of the other ones. So the first one, property ladder. Why should we want to get on such an unstable and exposed object? Can't we have a property couch? So Australia has an obsession with making money from property. We think that we can have not just one house that we can occupy, we think we can have more and make other people occupy those houses. In most of the rest of the world, this is incredibly uncommon and it is seen as a right that you have your own house. Doesn't mean you own it, you might rent it but that rent is stable. You don't have to worry about the rent going up every year. You don't have to worry about picking up your family and moving your kids to a different school because you can no longer afford the suburb you live in. You don't have to worry about aging in place and having to move away from your friends and family. I picked up some quotes from the newspapers lately. Immigration boosts Australia house prices by as much as $6,500 a year. Melbourne unit prices at record high despite construction woes. 
Australia's median house price rising back to peak levels as markets rebound the strongest quarterly growth. They're all talking about increasing in house prices as a positive thing because they're all looking at it from the perspective of those who are lucky enough to actually own property. All of those messages for those of us who don't own property are incredibly depressing because not only does it affect housing price, it then also affects rental price. So to quote a well-known climate activist, how dare we? How dare we think we have a right to own more than one home or to live in more than one home and exploit the misery and the isolation and the fear that mortgage stress and housing stress creates for so many families. So imagine as a single parent, if you had a child, obviously if you're a parent, you probably do, and you don't have to worry about how you're gonna pay the rent. You don't have to worry about how you're gonna meet your mortgage. Imagine what you could spend that time thinking about and doing and socialising and learning and educating yourself and hanging out with friends and coming up with new ideas to defeat Melbourne's housing prices. So how dare we be so entitled that we think we should own not just one property but more than one? The second one is about density, so can't leave that alone. There's beauty in density and it's not a dirty word. So it's well known and understood amongst I think everybody in this audience that density is required to create sustainable neighbourhoods. So a shop can't stay open and can't pay its rent if people can't get to it. And given that we're driving towards, I shouldn't have said that, we're walking towards more walkable neighbourhoods, if you don't have about 50 dwellings per hectare within a 400 metre radius of a neighbourhood activity centre, that neighbourhood activity centre will fail. People will get in their car and they will drive to the next closest major activity centre with the very large at-grade car park, kind of whittling away those little neighbourhood centres that we all used to enjoy. So if it's a fact, like climate change, there's data to back this up. It's not mythical, it's not made up, it's not a, oh, I think it might be. There's fact and data and research. Then why isn't that a policy? Why isn't there a policy that if you're within 400 metres or 800 metres of an activity centre, that you have to deliver housing products at, for instance, 50 dwellings per hectare or greater? It's not rocket science, yet we're still allowing developers and infill, both greenfield and brownfield, to create neighbourhoods at a far lower density because they say the market can't cope. So how about we set some policy and make the market rise to that and start to actually demand density? The next one's about neighbourhood character, our favourite. Really? Define it for me. What is it? And whose neighbourhood character is it? It's, it's in VCAT, it's reduced to mock heritage and height, basically. Neighbourhood character is used to disguise people's not-in-my-backyard attitude about design and development. And partly, maybe we have ourselves to blame in that the apartments that were delivered 20, 15, 20 years ago and some that are being delivered now are such poor standard, and I'm sure someone else will talk to that as well. But it is possible to deliver fantastic medium-density um, outcomes that are within character. The bit that always kills me, and I, I didn't start my career here, I had to go and do a planning degree when I got here to understand just how pardon my language, fucked up our planning scheme is. But in these areas of high character, if you have a lot that's, say, 300 square metres or maybe 500, depending on the planning scheme, and you deliver a house and there's no other overlays, so no heritage or anything, you can deliver some French provincial, Italianate, mock Georgian crap. And because you don't need a planning permit, nothing to do with local character, you don't get quizzed on local character, you're creating your own 
fake character, yet right next door to you, if you want to deliver two houses, God forbid, maybe even an apartment with six dwellings or 15 dwellings, you get slammed at VCAT because you're not in character. So I think we have to have a really close look at what this neighbourhood character is because surely a neighbourhood character that is filled with people walking in the streets, saying hello to one another, walking through green safe streets is a far better character than these sterile, leafy, eastern green suburbs that are, don't change it. Now I live here, nothing can change. You know, there's too many cars. Oh my God, keep it as it is. The reality is that the world is changing. We need to accommodate people. And if we don't accommodate people in areas where there is already existing infrastructure, we're going to continue to build on the only farmable land we've got left and create urban sprawl. And we all know what happens with urban sprawl. People get depressed, their obesity rate rises, their health crisis, they spend three hours in a car commuting. Um, it's a pretty dire situation out there. So all of that leads me to politics. Politics and planning, what is it good for? Um, this is the hardest topic because it involves money and power. But again, how dare we leave the fate of our urban environments in the hands of politicians, local councillors and lawyers? Because that's what it comes down to. You put in a planning permit, local councillor who's got all their residents in the background going, oh, I don't like it, I don't like it. They say no, you go to VCAT, tell you who's making the money there, the lawyers, 650 bucks an hour, thank you very much. And they're arguing points of law, so-called law and policy, from our planning policy, against each other, slagging off expert witnesses who are actually trained in the area of architecture, urban design, traffic, and it's basically a point scoring activity. All because the planning scheme is discretionary, we're talking about neighbourhood character, and because there's a political power that allows people to pull on the voting system to get things stopped. So again, how dare we be so uh, complacent and think that this can't change because it's always been there. I know a hell of a lot of lawyers and a hell of a lot of councillors are gonna be up in arms. And again, I've got some stuff from the uh, website and these are direct quotes from the councillors and how they got their jobs. While I support appropriate development in the fast changing Melbourne landscape, I've dedicated to maintain the existing character. This one demonstrates a strong passion for protecting the existing amenities and controlling overdevelopment. There's a passion to ensure the cherished neighbourhood character homes and way of life are protected through effective governance. They've been actively involved in grassroots campaigns against various inappropriate developments. All of that's just save our suburbs. It's please, I don't want anything to change. I'm very comfortable. I don't think anything should change from here. Um, we know that's not possible. The world is changing. Um, so imagine, for instance, a planning scheme, and again, I know this is not the solution, but what would happen if, say, we had a control around the environmental sustainability of our buildings? So your building has to meet nine star, green star, or whatever the tool might be. And then you set a height limit based on the amenity that surrounds that building. So if you don't want the street to be overshadowed, then you do a shadow diagram and that sets a height. If it's around a neighbourhood centre, maybe we're going to allow something, you know, six, seven storeys, whatever it is. So you get a mandatory height, you get a mandatory environmental impact, and potentially, God forbid, you get mandatory landscape requirements so we can get some large tree canopies back into the environment. If you can tick all of those things, you get a planning permit. No one can argue. If it's pink, it doesn't matter because it's low vox paint in a beautifully designed building that has fresh air and access to light and everyone's happy. So I think, I know we have to 
totally changed the way we think about this and it's a, it's a really tough gig and I'm really glad this competition is going to start to address some of this. Um, and I will just dare um, end with the, how dare we. You know what? We really should dare and we should dare really hard to try and make some change. Thank you very much. We've um, started with a bang there on speculations on urban design and planning and uh, we'll come back. Do start making your notes of good questions to ask of our speakers. Our, our second speaker is Dr. Fiona Andrews, and she will talk about speculations on family-friendly apartments. Over to you, Fiona. Thanks so much, and thanks everyone for coming along tonight. So how can we best accommodate a doubling of the population without doubling the footprint of the city and ensuring Melbourne remains a livable city for all? Looking at tonight's brief, um, I have to say that us academics are not very good at wild speculation and utopian ideas. But I do hope that my research might offer some practical solutions to some of these issues. Just before I share the three important things I want to talk about, I just want to explain a little bit about my research. So it involved walking a mile in the shoes of families raising preschool-aged children in private apartments in an inner city municipality. So over two weeks, families were asked to photograph aspects of their apartment environments that supported them or challenged them in raising their children. We then interviewed them about their photos and asked them about their experiences. It's a real shame that I can't share the photos with you tonight because they actually say a lot more than the words. Um, but. Um, I can at least share some of what people said. So my first important point is that families with children want to and do actually already live in apartments in our city, and we really need to catch up with that. So at the last census, over 40% of all residents of apartments in Australia were comprised of families with children. But despite this, government policy and consequently architects and developers have really lagged behind responding to this growing demand. For example, as Brendan from our study, who lived with his partner, two adult children, and a preschool-aged child in a Collingwood apartment complex, so eloquently put it. What does government want this area to be? If they want it to be full of just double-income, no kids, who are going to be here for a year or two, then develop these tiny apartments. Go on, knock yourself out. But if you want to have families, longevity, a real community, then you'll force developers to make apartments a bit larger so people can actually stop and live here. That leads on to my second point, which is that apartment, um, current apartment design doesn't really support everyday family life with children. For example, as Anita, mother of two preschool-aged children, living in an apartment and talking about her kitchen, explained. We had to knock out the built-in shelf and put another one a few centimetres higher just to have a normal-sized fridge. We had to put in extra storage because the cupboard they promoted as the pantry is actually in the master bedroom. Everything seems to have been done for aesthetics rather than practicality. Moving in as we did with a two-year-old and another one on the way, the thoughtlessly designed kitchen has been a source of many frustrations. 
While many of these child-unfriendly designs were merely frustrating, in some instances, designs were potentially dangerous. For example, families reported having to override locks on windows at floor level to adequately ventilate their apartment and then risk their children falling out of the window. They reported having balconies that could be climbed over by young children or having car stacker systems with no sensors that could trap a child. So that moves, on, moves me on then to talk about some solutions. So my third point then is that new design guidelines are required that consider families as legitimate residents of apartments, not some sort of freaks. Unlike in countries like Canada, currently children are only mentioned once in the Victorian guidelines if you do a little search of the document. Many of the design features described by families in our studies were really not insurmountable and would not require significant expense to be addressed in the overall context of the cost of building new apartment complexes. I'll give the last word to one of my participants, Mia, who is mother of a young toddler living in an apartment in Abbotsford, who had a large but completely unusable communal shared space in her complex. She explained, there's no softness in the space. There's no child-friendly area. It's all cement and hard corners. I can't just hang out in my complex. I have to leave if I want to give my toddler some outside time. I just want to be able to go outside with a cup of tea and put him down so he can crawl around. I feel like in the interests of cost saving, they've really missed an opportunity to capitalize on the natural environment that surrounds the building. So to have a cement slab and not invest in a communal garden or landscaping or anything that's sympathetic to the surrounding nature seems to be a massively lost opportunity. So to sum up, my argument is that one solution to accommodating a growing population without doubling the footprint of the city and compromising Melbourne's livability is to consider families with children as legitimate residents of apartments and then to develop more family-friendly apartment complexes that better meet their needs and address some of the design deficiencies in the current apartment stock. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I think um, in some ways the, it gets to the nub of this, uh, this relationship between uh, a product which is market delivered and a common interest in what it takes for a city to be healthy, including nurturing families. Um, within a, with that in mind, I think it's appropriate to move on to our third speaker, Timothy Coates, who will talk about speculations in housing policy and affordability. Over to you. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So first of all, I just want to say thank you to Amanda for being very clear and calling out something that I think is really important in the debate, that higher house prices are not a good thing for most people. So my job at Grattan is essentially to run our housing policy program amongst tax and superannuation, all those other boring things that are in the newspapers every now and then. Um, and my job is essentially to make housing cheaper. That is essentially the stated goal of our work to try to make housing cheaper and more affordable and more accessible for all Australians. And I think Melbourne's got a big challenge in trying to make housing affordable 
at a time when population is growing so quickly. So we're adding 2.7% you know, to the population each year. If you think about that, that's 10%, an additional 10% of, of Melbourne residents every three to four years. So obviously that's 10% more school places, 10% larger hospitals. But I think the really big one is you need 10% more housing. Now, that's a big challenge because we're building a lot of housing right now. So you can see the cranes that are going up around Melbourne, you look at the outer suburbs, there's a heap of housing going up. But even now we're barely keeping up with that additional demand for housing from new residents, from just the enormous number of, of migrants coming to Melbourne because it's such a great place to live and there are so many opportunities here. And the challenge is if we don't build enough, then housing will become less affordable. So housing markets are very complex, they're affected by lots of things, interest rates, tax settings, all these sorts of things. But everything else equal, they're also affected by supply. And if you don't build enough housing to meet that population growth, prices will rise, rents will rise, and it'll become more expensive. And, you know, frankly, I've been at Grattan for five years and I've probably failed in my job in those last five years because housing has become more expensive in that time. Rents have risen, prices have gone up, and it's really driven a growing divide between the wealthy and the poor in our society because rising house prices transfer wealth to those that own property and away from those that don't. And it's going to be a big driver of inequality going forward as there's a growing divide between the housing haves and the have-nots. So what has this got to do with design and planning? Well, planning is obviously one of the ways that affects how much housing gets built. Now, the reason is very simple. The, well, why do we have planning? Essentially, for lots of reasons, but a core one, the core economic reason, is because when you build something, when you change land use, you affect those around you, and planning is one way of solving those problems. Now, unfortunately, a lot of it comes down to power. If we're in a world where local councils reflect a lot, have a lot of control over what gets built, the residents of those neighbourhoods have a lot of control over the amount of housing that gets built in that area, they have the say, they're on the council, they're the ones showing up at meetings, and those that would live in an area if more housing was built, they don't get a say. And so one of the big challenges we've got is that there's an enormous correlation between the amount of housing that gets built in Melbourne and the degree of economic and political power of the suburb. So you see far less new housing being built in the inner southeast, whether it be Mock Georgian mansions, um, and you see a lot more being built in the north where I am and in the west. Now that's fine to see a lot of housing built in those areas, but the areas in the southeast are where most of the existing transport infrastructure is, where most of the existing parkland, good schools, libraries, other infrastructure is. I'm in Preston, there's not a lot of this where I'm in Preston, I've got to tell you. And so that's a real challenge for a livable city if we're not building housing where our existing infrastructure is. We're lowering the average quality of life of residents in Melbourne, and we're ultimately going to make housing less affordable. But what's this got to do with design? Well, at the, end of my at the end of my street, I'm in a little three-bedroom house, there's a giant factory. Now, that factory has been zoned to turn into, eventually, a seven-storey apartment building. Now, as an economist and someone who wants to make housing cheaper, that sounds like a pretty good thing to me. There's one problem, which is I look around a lot of what's been built in the rest of Preston, and I get a bit worried. It doesn't look particularly great. Look, I'd actually be fine if it was pink. Unfortunately, it tends to be exposed concrete that bleaches pretty quickly. There's not a lot of the way of setbacks. There doesn't seem to be, all the apartments look very small, have tiny balconies. It doesn't look like it's ever going to be particularly family friendly. And the problem with development is it's a one-shot game. So I really pray that that site does not get developed for another 10 years, at which point, 
hopefully this design competition and everything it sparks will have designed resulted in a change in the type of development and the quality of development and design in Melbourne. And that's a large reason why people are not willing or interested in more development near them. It's not just about shadow overshadowing and car parking, although those things do matter. And in fact, you know, they are the big drivers. But the other big driver here is that you don't want to live next to something that affects both your property value as a homeowner and also the quality of the urban space in which you live. Because if that spot at the end of my street is designed well, it'll activate the entire area. And if it's designed poorly, it'll completely change the character of that area for the next 20 to 30 years. So given that, design is really important. The question is, how do we go from a single demonstration project or a series of, a series of, um, of, of a competition that generates a series of designs to actually building into the system? I think Amanda really picked up on where you've got to go. You've got to build this stuff into the planning system. You've got to change the incentive for a developer because we're always going to have a profit-driven development model or in most worlds we're probably going to have a profit-driven development model. And so what you need to do is to incentivize them to stop building the kind of things that I don't think a lot of us like and start building the kind of medium-density apartment buildings that we'd really want to live around that would make our communities such better places. So on to our, our fourth speaker this evening. Uh, we have Stefan Pruess who will talk about the future speculations in sustainability. Over to you. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, there's so many topics coming up. It's uh, going to be very interesting. I think one of the most interesting parts will be how to actually change sentiment, you know, where, how to build momentum, how to change sentiment, and the powers that are out there, because they're not leaders, they're following sentiment. So if we can change sentiment, perhaps that's a good start. Um, I would like to pick up the topic of how dare we and transform it to how could we. Um, first of all, the Government Architect's Office is, role is to make house, not more housing, not cheaper housing, but better housing. So between us, we've got it all sorted. Um, I have three speculations for you. Um, the first one is picking up on the theme of our time, literally these weeks and months that we've been living through for the last, well, since December in New South Wales, a bit longer, and that is, you know, climate change is coming home. You know, it's here. It's not theoretical. It's not a number. It's not in an IPCC report. It's actually here. We had to shut our homes to actually stay safe, to make sure our kids' asthma doesn't get triggered. So my first speculation will be the, the need for fail-safe homes. As the federal government's failing us, um, and as politicians and concerted efforts are failing us, I think we need to build resilience uh, into our homes that is actually tangible and practical. Um, to give you an example, Western Sydney, according to the modeling of one of my friends at UNSW, will experience 17 days over 50 degrees by 2050. So what we've seen to date is nothing, and it will only get worse. Yeah, there'll be two, three years maybe now that we have a bit of less bushfires and people forget and so on, but it will continue. So what does it mean for our homes? What do we need to build today into our homes that actually means tomorrow, if this happens, you know, you can close everything, you have enough air, you can have, you know, maybe you can run one air conditioner to stay safe. I know Department Housing is very acutely aware of these things because their tenants, are very susceptible to um, illness, 
and so on. In France in 2003, 18,000 people died from a heat wave. Now, this is just an abstract number for us. We get excited about, you know, when 25 people die in the bushfires. It's like, this has been on scale for a long, long time, and we need to translate it into design today. Um, ASBEC, which is the Australian Sustainable Built Environment Council, has basically, as a peak body of property council and everyone else, said we must have zero carbon homes by 2030, and these homes need to be safe as well. And that means, um, and I have one test, which I would like to put forward as a future mandatory test, as a speculation. The test would be shut all the systems off in your house on a, whatever, 40 degree day, and tell me how warm it's gonna get within five hours, 10 hours, and so on. And that should be a test to see whether it should get a planning permit or not. Second speculation would be the carbon positive home. Very obvious. I say carbon positive because carbon neutral is really, really hard. It's an absolute number zero. You can't, you actually have to have, you have to target carbon positive to get to carbon zero anyway. So apparently, according to the Carbon Reduction Institute, in eight and a half years time, we will meet 1.5 degrees of warming already on the trajectory we are currently on. In 14 years, will be two degrees. We're already at one degree. So it's not tomorrow, it's not even tomorrow morning, it is today, and we have to um, build homes that have, and this is my speculation, a positive carbon plan in place. That could be part of your build planning permit again. Whether you achieve it on-site, off-site, with renewables, with offsets, you know, there's a solution for every home, there's different degrees of it, but it could become one requirement. And the third speculation is somewhat left field, um, and that I call that the charged home. With the move to electrification, which is obvious, because we can, the, the built environment is by far the easiest fact, uh, sector to decarbonize. Try air travel, try, you know, shipping. You know, they're really hard to decarbonize. Houses are the easiest and the most cost-effective sector by a long shot. It actually saves money. Um, so the charged home means that we'll have a lot of electricity in the home. All of a sudden, electricity is our currency. If you combine that with, say, e-scooters, which I'm told is a 42 US billion dollar market by 2030, and if you've traveled to Europe recently, you will know exactly what I mean about e-bikes and e-scooters, and we haven't seen the beginning of it here yet. What does it actually mean if we have homes that actually trade in electricity as currency and vehicles that could be e-bikes, e-scooters, that can actually extend your range as a human without relying on the car, including maybe in terms of what does a 20-minute city uh, um, look like? What would a neighborhood look like? And what could that mean for regaining some of that public space that we currently so easily sacrifice to the car? So there are my three speculations. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And our Fourth, our fifth speaker this evening, Andrew Fergus, who's just come back from some time in Perth, very different urban conditions, and with some learnings from that experience. Thank you. And I might note, I uh, got the call up at 5.35 p.m., so if I'm less polished than the others, I apologize. Um, I first want to challenge our use of the missing. We know what it's not. It's not the city center, and it's not the urban fringe. That leaves 85% of our urban area remaining of which is a highly variegated context, geologically, climate, tree cover, building stock. I think when we talk about this missing middle, we need to be more nuanced, and that allows us to start to talk at the scale of the neighbourhood and the way in which people experience their suburbs. 
there are suburbs that are well serviced where an apartment building walking distance from a train station might be a good outcome in a missing middle context. And there are areas that are seven roads deep and about a 35 minute walk from the nearest shop where the type of density will be a very different proposition. So I'm pro this idea of establishing a series of codes that might introduce a higher quality across our urban environment that require careful local negotiation to understand how they modify to context. That brings me to my second point where perhaps I challenge the use of the term NIMBY, which I'm deeply uncomfortable with personally. For me, the NIMBY is a kind of promise. It's a promise of passion and care about a local area. It's a sense of belonging and a sense of a neighbourhood. I can't find that on Elizabeth Street or Franklin Street. So what we're finding in some of our dense environments is high degrees of transience in the central city. A typical one bedroom apartment has a tenure duration of 11 months. So that's not forming long, stable communities of the kind that we want. So I'm quite interested in this idea of how we might rethink density that is palatable to the suburbs that we are working within. And it brings me to adaptive reuse, which we're not doing particularly well in our suburban areas. And Perth provides a really fantastic case study of this. Perth does not have a missing middle, they have a misguided middle. 23,000 houses per year are built in established areas further than 800 metres from a train station, and they are exceptionally low quality and providing high climate risk. If you turned the aircon off in there, you'd be struggling within a couple of hours, I would hazard a guess. So we can learn a lot from Perth in terms of what not to do, where we, we approach the suburbs as a kind of carpet of evenly coded development of a similar typology. That's not how we win the hearts and minds of our residents. If we're not gonna do density for or at, but with our residents, what examples might we see that might be palatable? So there are two examples I'm gonna to refer to, one from Perth and one from Melbourne. The first, I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with the architecture practice Whispering Smith, House A, that's very many blank stairs. Um, this is an example of a project where the planning controls in um, Scarborough, 800 metres walking distance from a train station in an area generally characterised by bungalows. Um, the typical condition there is to bowl over, three houses, uh, bowl over one house, bowl over all trees, rake the sand, actually, um, and then build three, exactly the same three bedroom houses, which um, are not suitable for the typical household occupation of 1.8 people per household. Kate from Whispering Smith took a challenge to this and said, what if I keep the existing house? What if I treat that as an asset, as a carbon sink? So that has a building passport, it has materials, it has embodied energy. What if I build myself a small dwelling on the front within the front setback and build another one to the rear? What if I retain the three trees on that side? At the end of that outcome, you have a stealth density outcome that is loved by neighbouring residents. It's loved by the local council and upheld as an example. And just last week, we were in Perth working out how we can convert that into an intelligent planning control that incentivizes the retention of existing material and trees on site. The second example I'll give is the work of Alicia Bennett. And I'm not sure if she's here, possibly somewhere, but she's an academic at Monash University. And her principal work relates to the idea of stealth density. So I touched on the number of occupants per house. And this figure is something you'll find quite typically within the urban area, somewhere between 1.8 and 2.1 occupants per dwelling. So to compare that to Richmond in the Depression era, we might have had between 6.2 and 7 occupants per dwelling. So we're building far more houses in an area like Richmond, but we're accommodating fewer people per household. I'm not advocating to return to slum conditions. None of us necessarily want that. But I think there's a lesson there in thought, thinking about housing need versus accommodation distribution. So Alicia's work looks at how does the adaptive reuse, the um, typology I would argue as a city we are best at, far better at than the new build. 
how can we take that architectural intelligence into a way to provide additional high quality, high amenity occupancy of existing dwellings with additions, two, three storey additions in the front, in the back. How can we use that stock and densify areas like a, a Murrumbina or an Armadale where there is reaction to what's being built? And frankly, I would agree with the quality of what's been built has been pretty poor as you've seen in Preston. So how can we take that sort of um, that sort of thinking back to residents and see what does stealth density mean for their appetite. And it's a numbers game. It might look different, it might sound a bit like, a bit soft, um, a bit less heavy handed than a sort of carpet of infield densification. We can achieve exactly the same numbers of densification we need across this city if we think about it, but better, we can make it more politically pal palatable for the people who are electing those councillors on the basis of the crap that we've built in their neighbourhoods. The final point I wanted to make is about how our suburbs perform or behave. And this is something I'm really interested in. So if the city's role is principally the marketplace for the metropolis, it's the employment and GDP machine, and if the fringes of the city are about landscape and environmental protection, what role does this missing middle have in our city? If we build 80% site coverage in every plot, what does this mean for hydrology? What does this mean for heat island? What does it mean for canopy cover? So I referred back to the work actually of Rob Adams, now probably 10 years old, looking at the corridors of Melbourne. And it was the, cor the corridors was sort of the focus of the work, but it wasn't what um, sort of resonated with me. What resonated with me was the corridors were there to protect the green lungs of the suburbs that sat in between. Those areas where their principal role is to perform as biodiversity areas to provide uh, cooling across the urban area. So I'm really interested in any conversation in the missing middle, really understanding what do the suburbs provide that the dense urban transit corridors cannot. Very good, thank you, thank you. So, um, Fiona will have to leave in a few moments and I will ask you before you go a question, but before we get into questions, I had a, if you, if you, if you uh, allow me, uh, a very quick quote. It's from a book called Ill Fares the Land by uh, Tony Judd. Something is profoundly wrong with the way we live today. For 30 years, we have made a virtue out of the pursuit of material self-interest. Indeed, this very pursuit now constitutes whatever remains of our sense of shared purpose. But we've forgotten how to think about the life we live together, its goals and purposes. We are now not only post-ideological, we have become post-ethical. We have lost touch with the old questions that have defined politics since the Greeks. Is it good? Is it fair? Is it just? Is it right? Will it help to bring better society, a better world? The social contract that defined post-war life in Europe and America, the guarantee of security, stability, and fairness, is no longer assured. In fact, it's no longer part of our collective conversation. So I'd like to start this little bit of conversation by talking about the relationship between um, uh, our individual private lives and our social civic lives. And in the case of designing for families, put it in a very simple sense, are, are we failing to tell the story of the value that families bring? Not only in a warm and humanistic way that we all understand, but also in a, frankly, economic way. I, I'll give you an example. I was on a plane the other day talking to an engineer who works on a project managing a big project in, in west of Victoria, young fellow. Um, and after some conversations, saying, I don't know whether I'm going to stay in Melbourne, I live in Melbourne, or whether I'm going to move back to Perth, or actually what I'm really thinking about is moving overseas. And I said, why are you going to move overseas? Melbourne's a great place. Why aren't you going to stay in Melbourne? 
It's just so expensive. And he's got a young family. And here he is, a very talented, well-paid young fella with a wife who's also well-paid. And they're both going to move overseas or looking likely to move overseas because they can't figure out how to live as a decent family in Melbourne without living in some compromised scenario. So I just, Fiona, is there, is, do we need to reframe this conversation where actually we talk about the economic value of everybody, including parents who are well-paid, and we should, we should retain in our cities as a part of our economy? Yeah, absolutely. And um, some of those um, economic issues actually came out in the research. So families who were living in apartments, um, this was an affordable way to actually live closer to work. Um, they all were balancing that with, uh, you know, an hour, two hour commutes to live in the so-called family friendly suburbs. Um, and, you know, this was their preferred option to be, um, you know, much closer in. The other aspect as well is um, looking at the sort of work-life balance and, and um, not having those long commutes also actually helped some, particularly some women, um, remain in the workforce. So, um, you know, there was one participant in our study who said, you know, if, if we hadn't been able to have an apartment um, close to the city, then I would have had to have stopped working. Um, so that's somebody out of the workforce and that family having less of an income. So um, I think we do need to see families with children differently. They're not a separate thing that are just put over there. Um, and, you know, certainly that's the case in European cities, a lot more integrated. Yes. I was going to ask you about other examples outside of Australia. So from, from your experience, like, who is doing well and what are the conditions that allow them to do well that, that we aren't actually doing? Yeah, so I just um, alluded to the fact that um, in Canada they've um, had policy around family-friendly design for um, higher density living for, for quite some time. There was there's one policy that goes back to the early 90s um, that really captures some of the things that families talked about um, in um, my research. And I just want to reiterate that a lot of what people were talking about were not really expensive modifications. They were just a bit more thought um, and um, a little bit more recognition that people actually want to live, not just transit through. So there are some examples out there that we can draw on. Yeah. Um, I, I guess a question uh, for either um, Andy or Amanda, Ta talking about um, urban design and, and, and in, a in a sense, there's a scale to which the market seems to work, yeah? Uh, to some degree. You know, you get a sandwich, you know that the price is going to be what it should be because a sandwich is a simple thing to put together. The bigger this thing gets, like a train, like a railway network, it's not as easy, right? So the, the, the market seems to work at a certain scale. Beyond that, it doesn't. At the scale, when we talk about urban design, we talk about big factors. We're not really going to be able to hand over a chunk of the city to one particular economic, one, one, one company, one corporation. We don't want to do that, right? So. How do we find a connection somehow between what the market wants to do and what the government or the public sector or, or, or the political class feels able to do? Is there some way that we can actually, I hate to say this, but you know, we, we, the word neoliberalism has to come up at some point this evening. Um, and uh, you know, we, we live in a political paradigm that is still mortgaged to, quite literally, the, a neoliberal paradigm. 
So I guess what I find sometimes frustrating about these kind of conversations where I always want to find a, a can-do, what, what can we do, what's the solution? It's like, how do we get beyond that? That's not, probably not going to change in the near future, that, that political paradigm. So therefore, how do we somehow uh, engage, activate a commercial or market solution that helps us? As opposed to, in a sense, I, very often these forums, it feels like, can government come save us? And, and it's never going to do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking for other ways that, the, that, that, that design can help the market, help the commercial world to be part of the solution, as opposed to, in a sense, be the boogeyman or be the, you know, the, the, the dark lord making all the money at our expense. Big question. There's, I think there's about seven questions in there. <laughs> um, let's not talk about neoliberal housing policy or middle-class welfare or negative gearing. Um, I, th I think the first question that's in there somewhere is something about the scale at which it works. And I think yes. there are two aspects to that that are interesting to reflect on in Australia. One is the development machine, the rolling out of a stockland or a peat of a large volume of urban area which gives economies of perceived economies of scale. The other is the thing that we are excellent at not in a design sense, which is small-scale domestic construction writ large over many plots. Yeah. This is our paradigm of a lot of our infill already in Melbourne, um, yep. and the work of particularly Nigel Bertram at Monash Uni has, has, has pointed that out, work commissioned by the OBGA some years ago. So I'm really interested in how we can harness that um, quite resilient typology of light, lightweight timber frame infill construction, um, but think about it deployed in a more intelligent way, because at the moment, the code or the rule across the neighbourhood is not producing clever outcomes. We get the replicated driveway side by side that doesn't work together. We get the two back-to-back -back lots that never create the opportunity through the connection. So how can we think about the sort of intelligence in getting the, all the standards that we've talked about today working on the individual lot? How then do we incentivize a collective approach across multiple plots? How can we use development incentives? Um, and there's an example actually right now, which um, some of the people from the department will be familiar with where this is being experimented with in, in Ringwood, in the, the northern residential precinct of Ringwood, just a short distance from the, the centre. This is a piece of work through Swinburne University. And they're looking at riding a kind of sandbox planning control, which is where you experiment within an area with no worries that the precedent effect will be taken into adjoining areas. And they're looking at how to ride a code that really um, limits what you can do on a single plot, whilst accruing all of the benefits that might come from consolidation of adjacent landowners. Still domestic construction, still what we know how to build well. Hmm. Amanda, do you have any thoughts on that? It's a pretty complex issue, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it. Um, and building on what Andy said, I think the model that everyone knows now, the Nightingale model, um, which is delivering a, a slightly different housing typology where there's input into the outcome from the end user. So it's that owner-occupier uh, result that then allows people to stay there and they form connections and communities and, and you know, all the, the cyclical um, benefits from that. So I think it is a gradual shift, but I think it's already happening where the market is starting to understand that people now want to buy an apartment and live in it. And if they do that, therefore you have to deliver apartments with storage. And I was talking to Fiona before, and there's a study being done by MIT as well, where someone literally had to use their dishwasher as their cupboard because there was nowhere else to put the plates. So they can't use their dishwasher because that's their cupboard. So I think the more owner-occupy interest we have in this type of um, housing, the, the better the quality becomes. Market will then deal with that. 
but I still think it's a it's a planning thing where a developer is going to pay the price for the land that they think they can get away with, and they can get away with that at VCAT. They go in not wanting a planning permit. They go in knowing that they're going to end up at VCAT. If the planning scheme says a discretionary six, they reckon they'll get a ten. They pay the amount for a ten, and they deliver shit because they can't make it pay any other way. So I think yeah. it's a multi-pronged approach. Can I add to that just from the Nightingale perspective? So there's, there's two really critical points that have actually connected there where, so we look at Nightingale as, as a model in terms of delivering more sort of generous, um, ethical, sustainable housing. But Nightingale has suffered greatly as a result of the speculation of poor planning control. So uh, a number of Nightingale properties, you might know Nightingale 2 in Fairfield, that was VicTrack land, state government land, sold to a developer who had no intention of building. They got a permit for a five-storey office building, flogged it on at double the price to Nightingale. That speculation that occurred from the uplift of that developer was passed on to the residents of Nightingale. Nightingale Village, currently going ahead, um, was bought off a developer who had, um, or not a developer, a landowner. It's an important distinction there in terms of windfall gains. The landowner... Um, pulled together a number of properties, got a permit that was he never intended to build, greatly inflated the density of the site beyond what would be typical. Again, Nightingale bought it at an inflated rate and was forced to the hilt to have to extract quality and amenity out of that, out of that permit. If we had a simpler system with fixed plot ratios, and I believe one of the key, key things of planning is to, not just to manage externalities, but to set fair and appropriate valuation of land to create clarity for development. And if we had a simpler planning control that enabled architectural flexibility within a fixed yield context, it'd make it easier for modest developers to compete. So can I respond yeah. as well? Sure, sure. Just, just say that we, we will have some questions in two or three minutes and we will wrap up around about 7.30 for those people who want to know what time we're finishing. But carry on. Um, I'm just trying to channel Rob Pratland a little bit. He would say, <laughs> you need self-interest. I mean, if you're talking about market forces, you know, what does it drill down to? Go back to first principles, it's self-interest. So how can we trigger the self-interest of those who say own land that is currently not dense? People who may live in, alone in those places, how can they be part of the solution rather than be bought out by developers? So how can you disrupt the developer? How, or how can you facilitate a development process which includes those who currently own it? They might be able to li continue living in there, maybe with less maintenance, while bringing in some families and some diversity. And I would like to expand the sort of idea of family to also other forms of shared living, which I think is also important. Brandon. I will look as, a, as an economist, obviously self-interest does tend to rule, at least you, we see in almost all aspects of the kind of work that we do that ultimately that's what ends up driving the outcome. So I, I couldn't agree more that a system of discretionary planning controls where developers have the opportunity to try to game the outcome by pushing beyond what the existing planning envelope allows is, you know, largely one of the main ways that developers make money out of the process. It's rather than rather than just being in the process of housing construction, they're in the process of land speculation because if they can up up the amount um, that they can get, then that's a windfall gain, and they know that they've made money from the moment that they buy the house or buy the land, and then get it through the planning system. One of the things that I think is worth putting on the table is that, that that zoning uplift that comes from that process actually belongs to the community. So it's the community that is giving the right to a landowner to develop the land. And there's not really any strong reason why we shouldn't actually share as a community in that, that uplift. And the ACT already does this through a lease variation charge because they have a leasehold system. 
what they do is when you have to apply to subdivide, say your one house into three, you apply for a change in the lease and you have to pay $25,000 to the government for each of those subdivisions into the, the leasehold into three. And if you did that nationwide, you'd actually raise something like $8 billion. So it would become the third or the fourth largest tax base in Australia today if you did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, just to pull it back out for a moment to, to some design considerations, um, Amanda, you, 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 you talked about this, in a sense, this joke of what is typically considered neighborhood character and the, li the limitations, the limitations of, of what that typically means. One, I guess one, one reality of those limitations is that they're very often being executed by people who don't have judgment in design to make decisions and therefore they're actively looking for simple metrics like height or mass or whatever. So one question would be how do we increase that kind of uh, judgment within the planning process. But I guess more broadly, you could say, I'd be devil's advocate here, that um, the condition of being, of, of, of imposing uh, context, uh, existing context as a, as a datum, where you have people getting voted in on the basis of say, we will not have anything changing. That condition, arguably, to be fair, may have something to do with the representation of what architecture and design means to most people and their sense of ownership or participation in that. Is there a narrative side to what design is that we are letting down here where it's not so much that we necessarily want it to look like a 19th century factory or a brick-built building, but we know what we don't want it to look like. We've seen these images of things that are outside of our control, we don't understand, we're not familiar with. Is there a role for somehow overcoming that fear? Because it seems to me a lot of that is about fear of what happens next. I think it comes back down to the discussion about quality and it's how you create controls that dictate quality. And I think quality should be about the environmental impact of the buildings, um, both within its own embedded energy and also on the environment around it. Because really, if you looked around everyone in here, we'd all have a different idea of what we think a lovely building looks like. Um, we're not all experts, and even the experts that are architects and things, they'll disagree as well. So relying on this nebulous sense of what looks beautiful, and I know that there's some planning controls being considered in London at the moment where um, you know, bring beauty back, and God forbid we talk about Trump and his idea of um, of, of classicism and buildings. Um, <laughs> so I think, and that's why I guess my throwaway comment about having an environmental control on the built form, because it does force high quality materials, um, materials that breathe and have texture and all the terms that urban designers always use, you know, materiality, human scale, fine grain, blah, 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 all of that is embedded in buildings that respond to their environment. So I do think, without being too radical, that this idea of a valued neighbourhood character, and I was enlightened about where that term came from, that apparently it was a VCAT case from Dimity Reed back in the day, wow. and it was used to um, approve a contemporary building, I think, within by Nanda Katsalides, and councils have jumped on it as a way to not approve new development, but to restrict new development, because when they did the heritage controls, um, the stuff that missed out on the heritage controls, because it's just standard housing, they're like, but what about us? We've got old houses, we love them. So they put neighbourhood character over it. So these buildings are not valued heritage, they're just valued, I want my world to stay exactly yes, as it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, out of a fear. Is that Melbourne Terrace? Is that Melbourne Terrace? It's uh, St. Leonard's Place, I think. Okay, the St. Curious, I think little, Jill might know fact, better than me. Little factoid. Yeah. 
Um, we, we are almost out of time, but I, I do want to have a few minutes to have some questions from the audience. So do we have one or two good questions from the audience? We must have one or two questions. On the graph. Any questions? Ah, oh, there we have one over there. Yep. Uh, hi there. Um, I think my main question is less design-based. It's more about how do we force these policy changes? Um, I know that it's going to take time. This idea generation is going to be great, but the length that I know already it takes to push things forward, all these poor developments that are coming through uh, in terms of... Is there anything uh, I would like to know? Um, methods of interrupting the poor developments that are happening currently uh, while we do test out these great ideas because it really does look like it's going to be come down to policy change, but then the financial gain and the, the profit model that we're sitting in seems to, you know, it's going to take forever for these things to be implemented. Time frame. How do we accelerate change? I think there's already an example of this a couple of years ago, which was perhaps a, a negative backlash to what was being built, which was a new format residential zones. So when that was brought in by the previous government, it was brought in, in in a fairly expedited way as a reaction to concerns about the quality of, of development that was being. So we've seen speed when something's negative, but in terms of speed for quality, um, I, I can't think of any particularly great precedent. As a, as a migrant in this country, um, when I came here 15 years ago, my boss asked me the first question, like, so what car are you going to get? And I couldn't find a single... <laughs> efficient car I liked. Here we are 15 years later, we don't have a car industry anymore. So it's cultural change. You know, you go to Switzerland, apartment living is what you do. You know, and of course, three-dimensionality really helps because you can get views and privacy and all that stuff. It's deeply cultural, so it comes back to the human factor in, in terms of how you build the momentum, showing good examples, but also building the pressure to say this is not good enough anymore. Yesterday morning we had a Super Forum, Architects Institute Super Forum, and Jeremy was basically proposing activism. Like activism, every three months, a new goal. Let's, let's commit to something, act on it, and move on to the next. I thought, given the, the urgency, it's not a stupid idea. Do we have another question? One more question before I wrap it up. Um, thanks for your information today. I'm just thinking about uh, the design and zonings that you're talking about, how there's lots of high-rise development for high-income couples and how we're having issues with families. Do you think there is space for policy going forward to have more developments that have very defined restrictions on, like, if you put a new development up, it needs to have equal space for families, family living and for couples living, and should it be more integrated into each new development we do, um, as opposed to having these zones, like zones for high-income couples and zones for high-income families. Does it need to be more incorporated into every new building that we make and every new apartment block that we produce? Andy. I think there's, it's a really interesting question where we need to think about who's delivering the housing and on what terms. So one of the reasons why we can't deliver um, family housing is that if we say that South Bank, an apartment is $12,000 per square metre. If we add 14 square metres extra to an apartment to make that suitable for a family, they will pay 14 times 12,000 square metres per square metre more for that apartment. So if we are going to leave it to the market and prescribe dwelling sizes, 
we'll see one thing that happened in um, both Perth and New South Wales, which is that that stock would then sit and not sell for a long period of time because no one could actually take it up. They'd then apply to convert it to dual key and other things. Um, or we would see it being sold um, you know, to very high income people who are not necessarily the families I think we're talking about here, which I would um, say are moderate income families. So if we're going to make families a legitimate option in the city at moderate incomes, we need to find other ways to finance development or we need to find a way to subsidise them. I don't believe the market can deliver it in the central city or South Bank without it. Brendan, um, a lot of your work looks at the different uh, mechanisms, financial mechanisms, tax mechanisms that have impact on policy, on, on, on things like housing. I'm going to ask you this ridiculous question since we're talking about speculative what is in the future. Imagine you're the Prime Minister and you're thinking I want to leave a legacy for my children. What would be the one thing that you would, as Prime Minister, drive through that would make a difference, a positive difference to future housing? Well, if I wanted to make a difference to housing, I wouldn't be Prime Minister, I'd be Premier. <laughs> because most That's of the good. big drivers, so there's the tax policy settings and they will make some difference, but the work that we did in 2018 in our housing affordability report basically ranked every possible thing that you could do to make housing more affordable. And tax is not at the top of the list. It'd make a difference if you don't change the tax settings. You might bring house prices down by 10%. Now, that's nothing to sniff at, but when they've risen by 50% in the last six years, seven years, that's not that big a deal. The thing I would do if I was the state government is I would take over planning from the councils. I would basically make it a state government responsibility and take it away from councils. It is what Japan did. And Japan has seen incredibly cheap housing in the 30 years since it did that. Because essentially you get rid of this question of, well, look, I don't need them to be in my jurisdiction. They don't have to be in my council, all these extra people coming to Melbourne. Put them in the council next door. Put them out west. Put them in the north. They don't have to be in the southeast. And if you get rid of that incentive, so essentially either you have the state government take it all over or you have one council for Melbourne, which is what Brisbane has. And incidentally, that's the one place where rents have really been falling in the last decade, then that would be the thing that would make the biggest difference to affordability over the course of the next 10 to 15 years. Super. I'm going to move this question around the, around the panel. Andy, what would you do if you could make some big decision in relation to housing? What would make a big difference? I would focus on tax. <laughs> I, I would, I would re-look at capital gains tax. I would re-look at negative gearing. And I would look at what levers can be used at a large scale um, to tie to, to the property we deliver. I would relook at stamp duty. I'd potentially look to abolish stamp duty and replace it with a more traditional property tax, which captures the increment over time, as we've talked about with the Canberra example. And I would look at how we could tie the incentives that we do spend exorbitant amounts of money on already to the housing that we need. So let's say, let's just put one, one out there. Let's say we keep negative gearing and we say it stimulates the supply of private rental, which was its purpose. Let's then say that when that private rental is delivered, it's rent stabilised for its lifetime. What then? So suddenly you take a tool that's pr producing perverse outcomes and you're able at large scale across the city to provide a supply of stabilised private rental of a kind that we don't have in this country. I like this. Big thinking hypotheticals. Amanda, from you, hypotheticals. I'm going to take over your premier role when you retire and I'm going to depoliticise the um, planning department even further. So instead of tying it to the politics of either Labor, Liberal, whoever else gets in, it's going to be an independent body um, that's run by 
people who actually know what they're talking about and has a, a lifetime legacy to plan not just housing but all the infrastructure that's needed to go around housing, including schools and public transport, so that we finally get an integrated approach that doesn't rely on a four-year voting cycle to instigate change. Super. Stefan, your last, your thoughts. Well, based on all of these things happening, <laughs> and based on the fact that we think we don't like regulation in this country, which is actually not true, we just don't like it in buildings. We were the first ones to put uh, safety belts into cars, I think, amongst the first. Yeah. We banned solariums. I don't know any other country that's built solariums. <laughs> on the basis of science, believe that, and an invisible gas in the atmosphere. That's, what, that's really amazing. So I would take all that power that you have created and actually make planning into actual planning, which means defining what the built environment actually is going to look like, rather than misunderstanding planning or master planning as a set of rules that we somehow expect the market to then fill with meaning and innovation, which is just self-interest, you know, put spreadsheets put into built form. Super, thank you very much. Now, listen, before you all go away, uh, I just wanted to remind you that th this evening was a conversation, a series of presentations, but was also announcing our uh, Future Homes competition. In a sense, it was a kind of a warming up to, uh, a, a kind of trialing ourselves uh, for a more detailed exploration of housing through the competition. And I do hope that many of you will get involved in that competition, which, uh, which not only is worthy and very well constructed, but also has lots of money attached for those who win. <laughs> can I just, uh, can you please join me in thanking Fiona, Andy, Brandon, Amanda, and Stefan this evening. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.